Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include 401k withdrawals, my interview with attorney Brian Levy on the NAR lawsuits and the implications for the housing finance industry moving forward, and why treasury auctions have been receiving so much demand lately. Thanks to today's podcast sponsor, Gallus Insights your BI tool made by mortgage bankers for mortgage bankers. With Gallus, experience the simplicity of transforming complex data into actionable insights. It's smart, it's efficient, and it places automated KPIs right at your fingertips. If you can use Google, you can use Gallus. Go from data to knowledge with Gallus. Embrace simplicity, embrace superiority with Gallus. And if you do reach out or sign up, please let them know that you heard about it through the Christmas Commentary. Despite strong retirement savings, Fidelity Investments Q3 2023 analysis reveals a surge in hardship withdrawals and 401k loans, addressing short-term financial challenges. By the numbers, 3% took hardship withdrawals, up from 1.8% in 2022, 8% tapped into 401k loans, compared to 2.4% last year. But there is a silver lining. Retirement balances are on the rise, and saving rates remain steadfast. For those planning retirement, consider suggesting reverse mortgages as a game changer. They offer an alternative allowing access to funds without swiftly depleting hard-earned savings. If you haven't set up a reverse division at your shop, well, 10,000 people a day turn 62. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome onto the show attorney Brian Levy to talk about the NAR lawsuits and the implications for housing finance moving forward. He's most well known for his mortgage musings, his takes on the mortgage business and other stuff, which isn't necessarily intended to be legal advice, but it is enjoyable to read. If people go to mortgagemusings.com, they can, they can subscribe. Uh, it's very well written. The hopefully most- it's not a chore, right? That's the, the point. It's not a chore to read. Um, hopefully there's a thought or two in there that you might find interesting and um, maybe you'll enjoy the writing along the way. So uh, the most recent musing you sent out was uh, of some of your favorite musings throughout the past year. Uh, and I, I kind of want to run through these quickly. And, and we, there were, there were five that you had put on the, your, your list here, the CFPB misinterpreting RESPA again, duties and finding discouragement, a 1099 employee or a duck, the realtors crumbling dam, and Kim Newby and three CFPB hot takes. I want to start with the realtor side of things here because the NARGE went through a, an unfavorable court ruling against them, and it could potentially alter the entire real estate process. So uh, you had titled it The Realtor's Crumbling Dam. Why'd you, why'd you title it that? Because I think what, has, what we've lived with um, for as long as I've been involved in um, the real estate business, which is since I graduated law school in 1989 and was doing commercial real estate for five years, realtors have had a, I mean, it, this predates that, um, realtors have had complete control over listings in any given market through the MLS system. Um, in order to be listed on the MLS, you had to sign a, a listing agreement that agreed to pay a buyer's broker or something. Um, and it typically 
you'd, you'd see 6%, although it's come back to maybe somewhere between 5 and 6% in different markets. But that's been pretty much the standard throughout the country um, for as long as I can remember. And it certainly made sense in a pre-internet era when, you know, there, there needs to be one place to have all the listings uh, to go to go look for what's for available for sale. I mean, you know, I, I even remember there used to be these listening books and um, this is sort of, you know, again, pre-internet, you, you, you go to a realtor and they'd show you pictures on paper of houses that, you know, in a listing book and there, but it was all in one place. I mean, otherwise, how would you, how would you know what's for sale in, in Chicago or Pittsburgh or wherever? So, um, but we've, We've now had, you know, uh, 20 years or more of the internet, 30, I don't know. And um, we still have the realtors controlling all the listings. And um, this lawsuit said there's a problem with that. There's a there's an antitrust problem with that. Um, there's other cases pending, but this is the first one that that had a decision that went against that. Uh, went against the industry, the real estate industry on that point. So now the question is, okay, well, you can appeal, which they are. um, And there's other cases, again, that may be decided differently. But I just, I I described it as a crumbling dam because now there's a leak. And um, I just don't think you go back um, on that issue now that there's a leak Others are coming out with different models. Um, the opportunity to use the internet, the opportunity to use shopping models like eBay, like like Amazon, to buy and sell real estate just seemed pretty obvious to me. Um, AI can certainly jump into the equation as well. Um, I just think we're withholding progress on uh, the technology that we have, um, and that seems untenable. Um, so yeah, crumbling down. Do you have sympathy for what realtors could potentially be losing out on here? Do you think that this is finally a day of reckoning that's been a long time coming? Is that the wrong? No, I, don't, I mean, listen, I don't, again, I don't have any animosity towards the real estate business. They, they perform a very useful function. Um, a lot of people would be completely screwed if they didn't have a realtor helping them through the process of buying and selling a home. Um, that said, there's also some realtors who are, you know, not as good as others um, and rely on this monopoly that they have on the listings um, to, you know, do very little and get paid a lot for it. I mean, they've also gotten massive raises as the real estate um, values in the country have increased um far exceeding inflation for the same transaction. So um, there's a bit of an, too much of an incentive in these transactions um, relative to thing was said initially, um, inflation adjusted. So um, it, it stands to reason that this is one of the biggest costs in the, in the transaction and that, you know, there's, there's opportunity to, um, to reduce that cost um, but again, I, I, I want to emphasize that I think realtors perform a very valuable function and for many buyers, um, it's essential. And so if realtors, you know, we have to figure out a way to give buyers 
that kind of assistance and sellers too, who may not, you know, really know how to negotiate and sell a house um, and enlist it and make it look uh, proper for, for um, buyers to come and visit and look at. Is there a certain way mortgage companies should be preparing themselves for further court rulings in this matter or one way or another? How, how are you advising clients on it? I think mortgage companies need to be very nimble in this environment. Um, I think they have to watch um, as these developments occur. Models get put on the table. How will they be able to gather um, their customers if their primary business model is to get referrals from realtors um, and realtors no longer have the same um, referrals opportunities? Um, where are those Where are those buyers going to look um, to find a mortgage co- uh, company to use? Because, I mean, I don't think mortgages are going to go away um, anytime soon. In addition to to this litigation that's out there, what's some other litigation that is really catching your eye or you feel like companies should be aware of moving into the new year? Well, I mean, if we're talking about mortgage company litigation, you you have to always keep in mind fair lending. Um, and I think everyone in the industry is familiar with the Townstone case. Uh, I'm keeping a close eye on that to see where that goes. I mean, the CFPB is really kind of... Um, put all of its eggs in some respect in that basket in the appeal um, with respect to their, their positions on prospective applicants. Um, and if it, you know, that I don't think they would find um, uh, that the Supreme court would, would be uh, supportive of their position and that are now at the seventh circuit. Um, it's, I listen, I, in one, uh, in one of those musings, I think I mentioned that I applauded them for proceeding with the appeal because they're they're firm believers in their position. And the way that you um, you prove that out is you appeal the lower court decision and try and get it reversed. Um, you know, historically, the CFPB has kind of decided, well, we don't really we don't really care um, what the court says. We're going to interpret things ourselves and maybe they would go to a different circuit and see if they would get a different result um, than the, than the one that they got at the seventh, that they got at the lower court in the seventh circuit. So again, I applaud them for going that route. Um, and I definitely think the industry needs to keep an eye on that to see where things um, end up. There's, there's a lot of talk in general with the Supreme Court, whether it's overturning the Dobbs decision or this Trump 14th Amendment thing from Colorado about getting him off the ballot, that it's the courts become politicized. It's political. Do you think that extends to rulings in the mortgage arena, the housing arena? How do you see them ruling on cases or siding on cases, considering a, the conservative supermajority? I don't think the the Supreme Court necessarily views it as a conservative uh, the, the housing industry or I don't think it's really a conservative liberal kind of um axis um and so I think they're much more you know what is what is constitutional and what isn't um so for example the there was a recent case that the industry is also following um involving the CFPB funding source 
Um, and then the Fifth Circuit questioned that, said that that was unconstitutional, violated sort of the separation of powers um, provisions. And, you know, the I don't think that this, the Supreme Court is going to agree um, based on my reading of the of the oral argument. And again, I put that in one of my musings back in October. Um, I don't. I just don't think that that's that's going to be a winner, and so. I, but I don't think that that's a, you know, a a endorsement that this that the Supreme Court is going to give to everything that the CFPB does. I think they're just going to say on that issue, we don't we don't think this is enough to, um, you know, overturn everything that they've done. But I think there are other issues that will come before the court or could come before the court that. Um, may limit what it is that the CFPB can do in terms of their interpretive powers. Um, I mentioned um, also Chevron deference in one of my musings um, that I also um, used uh, uh, a ridiculous amount of Gordon Lightfoot um, references to the wreck of Chevron deference. I think that's going down and that's this concept that allows administrative agencies to have their interpreted interpretations of laws be deferred to by the court, which doesn't make a lot of sense because courts are supposed to be the ones that interpret laws, not administrative agencies, which are arms of the executive. So I, I just think it, 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 I don't think it'll fall along, you know, liberal, liberal conservative lines in the housing industry. Um, I think you have to look at each, each issue individually. Very well put. I'm going to cut us off. I think it was a little long-winded. But yeah. I, well, I was going to say I'm going to cut us off for there today. We're, we're uh, butting up against my time constraints here. But I, I do want to have you back on soon. I always enjoy speaking with you. And I do I do eventually want to touch on all the other good mortgage musing stuff that's going on out there, whether it's um, stuff with the, the CFPB. I mean, you had one on 1099 employee or a duck that sounded really interesting. Kim Newby and more CFPB hot takes, uh, duties and defining discouragement. So well, those are just my favorites. I mean, I, I you know, there, there was probably 14 or 15 over the past year. Um, and I could have list, I don't know if you know who Phil Shulman is, but he said only five. <laughs> that was his, his reply to me was, what do you mean? You only have five. I would have thought you would make them all your favorite. Yeah. Well, it's good that you get, uh, you enjoy what you're putting out there. I, I actually saw a good little clip, uh, by a, a, music producer, a guy named Rick Rubin, and he was saying, I make music for me. I don't make it for the audience at all. If it's something that I enjoy, other people are probably going to enjoy it. The second that I start trying to do things to appease other people is when the, the quality of the product goes down. Oh, you need to send me that. I love that. That's uh, that's my philosophy as well. Yeah, there you go. Thank you very much for the time. All right, Rob. It was another slow news day yesterday without any meaningful economic data or news to move sentiment. However, investors are laden with optimism as a soft landing for the economy comes into view and seem to be throwing caution to the wind with over 150 basis points of Fed funds easing fully priced in for next year. In accordance with that, benchmark bonds rallied to fresh highs yesterday after the U.S. Treasury sold $58 billion in five-year notes to excellent demand. The strong auction exposed some short positioning and it invited additional late buying. That followed Tuesday's $57 billion two-year treasury auction that attracted a record number of indirect buyers to snap up high yields 
before the Feds anticipated rate cuts, which are fully priced in to begin at the March meeting in just over 80 days. Yields on benchmark treasuries have dropped to levels not seen since the summer. Today has a fuller calendar than the past two sessions in regard to economic news. We were underway with initial jobless claims, which came in up 12,000 to 218,000, a little higher than expected. And we've also had continuing claims and advanced economic indicators for November, which includes good trade balance, retail inventories, and wholesale inventories, none of which moved rates. Later today brings the NARS Pending Home Sales Index for November, Freddie Mac's primary mortgage market survey, and another large amount of supply from the Treasury, headlined by $40 billion of seven-year notes. We begin the day with agency MBS prices, worst few ticks, or 30 seconds, the 10-year yielding 3.81 after closing yesterday at 3.79%, and the two years down to 4.25%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. Here's a New Year's prayer for the aging mortgage banker population. God, grant me the senility to forget the people I never liked anyway, the good fortune to run into the ones that I do, and the eyesight to tell the difference. <laughs> Thanks again to Gallus Insights. Mortgage KPIs automated at your fingertips. Gallus allows you to go from data to actionable insights. If you can use Google, you can use Gallus. If you have any questions about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search Mortgage News on any platform you get your podcast from.